Welcome to the February 2008 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Melissa Neller. And this week we're going to focus on the science of social networks. And we'll also tell you about some exciting cancer research. But first, I had the opportunity to chat with Nicholas Christakis, a professor in the Harvard Medical School Department of Healthcare Policy. Christakis analyzes social networks and, in particular, ways that these networks can affect our health. The average person on the street, and certainly the average sort of uh, person who's interested in science, nowadays has an understanding of the fact that you can draw a network that represents a particular kind of way things are interconnected. Uh, and people appreciate that these kinds of networks, especially social networks, can affect their lives in different kinds of ways. Is there like some sort of underlying common universal language that well, all networks speak? There are a lot so, of network scientists uh, like, um, like Lajlo Barabasi and Duncan Watts and Mark Newman and others who would have us believe so, uh, that there are fundamental ways of understanding the way networks are organized. Uh, one example would be uh, the importance of hubs within networks and why do hubs arise and what does it mean to have hubs. And you can have a hub, for example, in a, in a, in a network of airports. Uh, so Chicago O'Hare might be a hub. Uh, uh, or you can have hubs in terms of people, a particularly popular person uh, who is very central in the network or well-connected. Uh, and this person, for example, might be an opinion leader, might be able to influence the decisions and choices made by other people within the network. Um, this notion of hubs, for example, is, would be a fundamental uh, way of thinking about a network, one of many possible ways of thinking about a network, uh, that would be common across these different kinds of networks. So a few months ago, in the summer of 2007, you uh, co-authored that very influential paper on obesity and social networks. And I remember you were finding clusters of obese individuals would those be considered hubs, as we were just talking about? Uh, to some extent, I suppose, uh, but I would describe those clusters as being another property of a network, another sort of fundamental property. When you have a network, it becomes possible to imagine that there are clusters within the network, that there are particular niches within this socio-topological space. Either those clusters form in a kind of birds of a feather flock together kind of way, people form ties because they have particular attributes, or those clusters arise because of the kind of uh, augmentative reinforcing pattern. So, for instance, a, one group of people, let's say, starts gaining or losing weight, and that causes weight gain and weight loss in other individuals to whom they're connected. And what we found when we looked at our data was that, A, there were clusters in the network of both obese and non-obese individuals, and that these clusters were not solely due to the birds of a feather flocking together, it was also due to this induction process. There okay. was a kind of spreading process in the network so that what I did influenced what you did, what you did then influenced what someone else did, and that influenced what someone else did, such that my behavior and who I am depends not just on my own choices, but also on the choices and behaviors of people who are one, two, three degrees removed from me in the network. So in a sense, I guess one application is you can't like just abuse yourself and just say, well, it's a victimless crime, or I'm, uh, yeah. you know, Actually, I'm only hurting myself I'm only so my I get off my back. Yeah, I mean, that is a wonderful uh, point because my group is particularly interested in, in this notion of interpersonal health effects. 
which are also known as health externalities. How is it that illness or death or healthcare use or health behavior in me affects illness or death or healthcare use or health behaviors in other people to whom I'm connected? And there are many examples of this that are kind of scattered in the literature that we're trying to synthesize. For example, most people are familiar with the widower effect. My wife dies, it increases my risk of death of substantially. It's a kind of a non-biological spread of disease. Her death causes my death. It spreads from person to person. Or behaviors might spread. We looked at obesity recently. So, uh, you know, I gain weight. It might change your attitudes about weight gain, people to whom I'm connected. Uh, it might change their attitudes, and they might start gaining weight. Now, I know that with the obesity study, um, you looked at tens of thousands of individuals. 12,000 people. 12,000 people, okay. And to see how obesity in particular spreads through these social ties. What other sorts of things have you looked at? So we've looked, we've been looking at a bunch of things. Um, we have reason to suppose that things like smoking behavior, uh, drinking behavior uh, will spread in the network. Other kinds of health-related phenomena different than behavior, for example, screening behavior, whether some person gets a colonoscopy will influence the colonoscopy that other people around them get. And, and I suppose one of the questions you probably have to keep answering is, well, isn't this just obvious mm -hmm. you know people influence people you know what amazes or, or I know but what amazes about that is that we when we first started doing this work what we thought was an original contribution of our work was the uh, innovative way we were able to document some of these effects in large populations with complex network architectures over long periods of time so in our data set we had uh, 5,000 individuals core individuals who had a, between them 38,000 social ties, not including their neighbors, and all these individuals were repeatedly measured over a 32-year period. And assembling this data set was not an easy thing to do, uh, and documenting some of these interpersonal spreads was technically not an easy thing to do, but we thought that the basic idea sort of would comport with the man on the street's notion of what happens. Of course I'm influenced by the people around me. What amazed us, though, is when the obesity paper came out is how many people thought that this was preposterous, this claim. Thought that, how, you know, how could it be? You know, it doesn't make any sense. How could obesity be contagious? And, of course, we, we were not claiming that it was literally contagious, like a germ. We were con contesting or, con or believing or trying to show that obesity might be contagious in the same way that we would say, for example, that laughter is contagious or that yawning is contagious. Um, and that, in fact, that it had something to do with social norms in a population uh, or the spread of behaviors. It actually has something to do with both the spread of behaviors and the spread of norms. And so what I think is sort of unusual or innovative about our work is we are drawing on common sense understandings of the kinds of things that can spread. For example, fashions within the network. People start wearing wider ties, and everyone starts wearing wider ties, or, or dresses that are longer, and others start wearing dresses that are longer. And we're showing that this same kind of process is also highly relevant to medicine and highly relevant to health-related phenomena. Yeah. It's interesting because we, as Americans, pride ourselves on our rugged individuality, mm. but uh, this is sort of... Uh, <laughs> no, man, no man is an island, exactly. <laughs> sort of uh, overturning that image. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me about this. Thank you so much, Mr. Kennedy. can affect their lives in different kinds of ways. Science nowadays have an understanding Harvard medical student Karimi Gatuma knows firsthand the power of social networks. 
When her native country of Kenya erupted into violence following a December 27th presidential election, she used Facebook and other social networking sites to rally the Kenyan diaspora. She formed an organization called Vuma Kenya and, in just a single month, organized a benefit concert that drew hundreds of Kenyans, along with concerned friends, colleagues, and others. Facebook is my friend. I honestly don't think we'd have been able to plan this without Facebook. Like everything we've done has literally been through those types of resources. Like I believe wholeheartedly in six degrees of separation. Like for me, it's like 1.5 because <laughs> every single person that I have conceivably thought of trying to reach out to, I've somehow managed to get a hold of them. One of the people she reached through Facebook was musician Miriam Shamas, a friend from Nairobi who offered to help Katuma locate other Kenyan musicians. She also agreed to perform at the concert. Shamas and the other musicians were eager to come together as a community. Like many Kenyans in the diaspora, they were shocked that tribal allegiances were trumping national unity in their homeland. I never really looked at any of my friends with any tribal label at all, other than that, okay, you, you know, you have a last name, you have your different customs and cultures, but that had never been an issue for us. And so that's why it was very weird for me to see people within my own generation getting so polarized just on the basis of tribe. Gatuma felt it was important to convey a message of unity at the concert. And let's just all collaborate together to send a strong message to the Kenyans out there who are going through a really difficult time that this is the time to unite as a nation. If we are able to rally the Kenyan diaspora around this, then that is going to at least help simmer things down a little bit, and hopefully it will have a trickle effect in Kenya as well. The concertgoers seemed to embrace Gatuma's message. Kenyans from different tribal backgrounds greeted each other in the Boston nightclub, exchanging stories about friends and family members back home. Anne Lutta, who heard about the concert from a co-worker, echoed the importance of unity. It's absolutely imperative that we come together because this war is about separatism. And they did come together thanks to social networking and a few motivated individuals. Gatuma's group hopes to maintain the momentum through a website. So we don't want it to be a website where people come and have a political discussion or anything like that because there are plenty of other websites already addressing that. But we want this specifically to address the needs of the displaced victims. One of the challenges I've seen with a lot of the people doing the disaster relief work is that everybody is kind of disconnected and no one is really talking to each other. No one knows who's doing what. And so we want to be able to coordinate those efforts together. You can learn more about Gatuma's network and support the victims in Kenya by visiting www.vumakenya.org. That's www.vumakenya.org. Well, now we're going to shift gears and bring you some fresh science straight from the lab. Azad Bani, a professor in the Harvard Medical School Department of Pathology, just published a paper in the journal Genes and Development with implications for an emerging field called personalized medicine. Here's Bani defining personalized medicine. So personalized medicine refers to the idea that patients with a specific disease are treated on an individual basis. The underlying molecular mechanisms behind the disease are different in different patients. So we need to know what those are and treat them accordingly. 
For example, when it comes to glioblastoma, a deadly type of brain cancer, not all tumors are created equal. Bonnie found that in some tumors, a gene called STAT3 promotes tumor growth, while in other tumors, STAT3 actually suppresses tumor growth. Again, here's Bonnie. So what this does is it lays the foundation for tailored therapy of patients with these two different sets of tumors. In one case, you want to activate STAT3. In the other case, you would want to inhibit STAT3. Well, that's it for this episode. And just as a side note, uh, not only can Nicholas Christakis be found here on the campus of the medical school, but he is also listed in Facebook where... I have to say, yours truly is one of his friends. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.